Hello and welcome to part three in our series, One Big Question. I'm Doug Gillum, and as you probably know if you're a regular at Christ Central Church, I'm not actually part of your congregation, but I must say I feel a very strong connection to your church. I'm going to explain why in just a moment. But first, I want to let you know that I'm coming to you today from Milton Bible Church in Milton, Ontario. I think we're actually a pretty significant church. You know, we have the distinction of being the first church that the Rushworth family ministered at when they moved to Canada. We had the privilege of being blessed by them and their ministry for a few years before they moved on to Fredericton. Now, since Mark has been with your congregation, he's remained in very regular contact with me. Actually, you know, that's not quite true. Um, I usually hear from Mark starting about October or November every year, and then pretty regularly until about March or April, depending on the severity of the winter. You see, Mark uh, contacts me often to find out how much snow you're going to see um, with me being a meteorologist. And often I've um, played a role in the decision as to whether you will be holding services or not based on the timing and severity of a winter storm. So I feel a connection there, and I think I've been a part of a few other maybe rain events during the summertime. Also, uh, Joe Crummy uh, has spoken at our church, and he was part of our uh, Weekend Away church retreat. So I do feel a connection to your church, and it is a privilege to be speaking with you this morning. Now, before I get started, I do want to commend your church and your leadership on even tackling this series. I think this is so critical. Now, Mark reached out to me uh, about talking about this. I was really excited because, you know, when they you talk to people who grew up in the church and left in the church. So often they say that one of the reasons why they left the church is because they were never able to get answers to their questions. They never felt even safe asking their questions. They were either told, um, you know, just believe, just have faith, or they're even made guilty for having questions, questioning their faith, wrestling with difficult topics. Now, I strongly believe that the church of all places should be a safe place to ask the hard questions, where we really wrestle with the tough questions. So I think that's great that you're, you're doing that, and we're going to tackle a question today that is uh, very um, near and dear to my heart. We're going to be looking at, doesn't science rule you out? That's the question that you would be asking God. Hasn't science kind of eliminated a need for God? So let's continue on. Um, now, why is this a critical question? Obviously, it was one of the questions that, um, that you raised um, as, as the, your church did the survey of the, the five questions that you would want to ask God. But this is, I believe, a really critical question because, as again, as youth are sur- surveyed, or as they ask people why they left the church, um, if they were raised in the church as youth, they often cite the fact that uh, what they were taught in their high school and university science classes, especially regarding evolution— Um, was why they left the church. They were taught that science had disproven the Bible. So we're taught that science and evolution has eliminated the need for God by showing that natural processes can explain the diversity of living things. So the questions that I want to look at as we address this topic is, does science really adequately explain the origin and diversity of life? Uh, also, does a scientific explanation of a process rule out the existence of God? So if science really does adequately explain the origin and diversity of life, and we're going to challenge that notion, even if it does, does that rule out the existence of God? And is it really within the realm of science to tell us whether or not God exists? 
So let's jump into this. We're going to look first at the nature of science and faith. Now, I have to tell you, the first part of this talk is a little bit, it deals with philosophy. It deals a little bit outside of my comfort zone, but I think it's really critical background for addressing this question. So bear with me. We'll get through this. But first, to answer this question, we've got to look at what is science? Well, originally, Science simply meant knowledge. But today, when people talk about taking science class, or do you, is science your favorite subject, or maybe you hate science, when we talk about science, we're looking at the pursuit and application of knowledge and understanding of how the physical and natural world works. So we're trying to gain information and understanding about how the world works, and we do this a specific way. If you've had a science class, I'm sure all of you have, you've talked about the scientific method. It's a methodology that depends on observation and experimentation. So this process is evidence-based, and it allows us to make predictions. So the scientific method, we have a question, you come up with a hypothesis, you test it, and the idea is that if you repeat an experiment over and over again under the same conditions, you'll always get the same result. If I were to drop this book, it would fall to the ground. It doesn't matter when I do it or where I do it, the same result would happen. If you mix two chemicals in the same proportions, you'll always get the same reaction if the conditions are the same. So this is a process, it's evidence-based, that allows us to make predictions. And this process has produced all sorts of great advances in technology, medicine, etc. Now the scientific method, no Christian has a problem with this. We, this, you know, this, the scientific method works, and when people talk about Christians being anti-science, it has nothing to do with this. Now, what wasn't part of, your uh, part of this definition, but is part of the definition of science, is science is also committed to natural explanations. Um, so by definition, the supernatural, and that includes God, is excluded. Now, I want to highlight first that like, this is really actually a good thing because before the scientific revolution, their explanation for why we had all sorts of things, whether it was a thunderstorm, a tornado, um, any natural disaster, was the gods were angry. We had displeased the gods, and the gods were at war. Um, so they came up with supernatural explanations for why things happen. Well, science doesn't do that. But is it necessary, like, is it contrary to science to still believe and to see evidence of God in creation? Well, we're going to get to that. But it's this commitment to excluding the supernatural that has given us a tension between science and the Bible. And it starts right off at Genesis 1-1, which tells us that in the beginning, God created. Now, so the position that the Bible and creation are contrary to or even anti-science is based on how science is defined. I want to really drill home that point. Um, I want to show that it's not contrary to evidence, but it is contrary to how we have defined science. Um, and he, a biology professor at Kansas State University states what so many scientists have come out and said, that even if all the data pointed to an intelligent designer, or that there was creation, or God, such a, a hypothesis would have to be excluded from science because, because it is not naturalistic. So he's saying here, it doesn't matter what the evidence says. We can't even consider the notion of creation or of God because 
of the fact that it, it's not naturalistic. But what I want to do today is take a look at some of the evidence for um, whether, there, you know, whether there really is evidence for, for God and creation. Now, because of this, there has developed relatively recently the notion that you can't be a scientist and believe in God. Um, I have a quote here that says, surely you can't be a scientist and believe in God these days. That quote is actually taken from a ex- really good book that I would highly recommend, written by John Lennox, one of the most readable books that I've read on, on this topic, Can Science Explain Everything? And a little bit of what I've in the introduction of this presentation is from this book. Now, this was a quote to John Lennox. Um, He ran into this all the time, but I've ran into that as well. My undergraduate degrees were in Bible and earth science, and I can't tell you how many times when I've told, when people say, oh, what what was your major? And I tell them, I get a lot of a, what? Really? How does that work? Like, it just just blows their mind that I could major in science and the Bible. and uh, I'm going to talk about how the fact that, um, actually, you know, my study of science strengthened my faith in God. Um, so many scientists have actually spent their careers trying to convince the world that science and God do not mix and that those who believe in God are ignorant. You know, look at this quote here. Um, yeah, this <laughs> very frustrating to me. The world needs to wake up from the long nightmare of religion. Anything that we as scientists can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done and may, in fact, be our greatest contribution to civilization. So people often ask, is there a conflict between science and the Bible? Well, I don't have a problem being a scientist and believing in the Bible, but there is a conflict um, that has developed. However, you know, we're, you know, I'm not unique in being a scientist in believing God, in God. In fact, between 1901 and 2000, over 60% of the no- Nobel laureates were at least identified themselves with Christianity. And if we go back and look at the history of science, uh, the, the connection between a biblical worldview and the rise of modern science is very well documented. C.S. Lewis wrote that people, um, it was because... Um, they became scientific because they expected law and nature. They expected law and nature because they believed in a legislator, or, you know, that they believed in a God who put laws into nature. Kepler, again, one of the uh, famous scientists with the scientific revolution, wrote, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order which has been imposed on it by God, which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. And Isaac Newton, I'm sure you've heard of him, so the more that Newton understood about how the universe worked, the more that he admired the genius of the God who made it to operate that way. So kind of the overall idea that you can't be a scientist and a Christian is actually a very recent development and fairly recent that you put into the definition of science that it has to exclude the supernatural. Um, so another uh, Nobel laureate in physics writes, the fact that there are rules at all, he just gives an example, uh, the inverse square law of gravitation is sort of a miracle. It's not understood at all. So the fact that laws can be mathematically formulated was for Einstein a constant source of amazement and he pointed and, and that it pointed beyond the physical universe to some spirit vastly superior to man. So the laws of so that the laws of nature describe the universe, but the reality is they don't really tell us anything about why they're there, how did they come about. In fact, the very existence of natural laws is a mystery of in of itself. Um, A couple key points here is science cannot answer the why questions, the questions of purpose. 
the existence of God really is outside of the realm of science. And something that strikes me is that you know, scientists are so quick to point out the fact that you can't use God as an explanation for anything, and yet they are also, they seem to very quick to say, hey, but science has disproven the existence of God. God is actually outside of the realm of science, but I don't believe that he's contrary to science. I just want to give a couple quick examples of this. You know, you know, some think that because we can explain so much about the universe, so there's so much that we can't explain using science, that that just explains away God. Well, I'll just use a kind of a, a simple, silly example. If I asked you to explain, why does Facebook exist? Well, you could say, well, because programming languages have been invented. Or you could say, because Mark Zuckerberg exists. Well, does the, both are necessary for a comprehensive understanding or explanation as to why Facebook exists. Um, so God no more competes with science as an explanation for the universe than Henry Ford competes with science as an explanation for the motor car. I hope that kind of makes some sense. Again, many feel that just because you can explain what's happening in the universe by different scientific laws, that that means God's out of the picture. And I don't believe that is the case at all. But um, and hang in with, with me for just a few more minutes, and I'm going to show you what I, th what I think is one of the more powerful pieces of evidence for, um, for God. But let's talk briefly about what is faith. Um, faith and science are often considered to be opposites. You either um, do science, which is based on evidence, or you have faith and you just believe, despite what the evidence says. However, faith does not mean believing where there is no evidence. Faith is also evidence-based. Our faith, our cr Christianity, is based on a documented event in history. We don't just kind of hope that Jesus existed and hope that he died on the cross and, and rose again. Uh, that is a documented event in history. And we look at why the Gospel of John was written. It comes right out and says it was written to provide us with evidence so that we might believe. So real faith is based on reason and what we know to be true. Now and that helps us to carry over the chasms of doubt when not every question is answered. There's no question we can't answer every question that you might have. Faith does play a role, but it's not blind faith. Uh, just an example, like if someone were to ask my wife right now, where is your husband? She would tell you that I am at Milton Bible Church recording a presentation talking to you about science in the Bible. Now, does she absolutely know that to be true? She has some faith, but she, it's not blind faith. She knows that I've been working on this presentation, and she knows you know, what I have told her, and she knows about my character. And so she's trusting that what I've told her is true. It's not just a blind faith. And so likewise, um, I think there's a lot of evidence that will uh, strengthen our faith, but it's not a blind faith. So uh, I love this quote, God has put enough into this world to make faith in him most reasonable, but he has left enough out to make it impossible to live by reason alone. And again, there's a, there's a lot of that God has put into the world that makes our faith reasonable. So Christianity, I don't believe, is taking a leap, a leap of faith into the dark. It's taking a step of faith into the light. 
So let's dive into the topic of creation versus evolution. That is the kind of the hot topic in science, and it causes the most controversy um, when it comes to this question of the existence of God. Uh, before we can do that, we've got to look at what is evolution. And evolution can have several different meanings. First of all, uh, evolution simply re uh, refers to change over time. Um, in that regard, I could say I fully believe in evolution. Change over time is a fact. However, evolution is also the leading theory to explain the diversity of life that we see on Earth with the suggestion that's that it somehow even explains the origin of, the, of life. Now the problem here is that you really can't lump the two together. Evolution cannot happen without life. Only living things uh, can evolve. But they somehow get lumped in together often, or uh, it's kind of assumed they're, they're together. Um, now the key thing to keep in mind here is that scientists and educators often go back and forth between these two definitions. I've heard it said many times, nobody with any intelligence questions that evolution is a fact. Well, which definition are you referring to? If you're referring to this definition, that's probably right. Uh, I know plenty of people who question, though, whether evolution adequately explains the diversity of life that we see on Earth, and certainly whether it explains the, the origin of life. Now, neither creation or evolution as explanations for the origin and diversity of life are actually testable and repeatable. Now, think back to when I talked about the scientific method. Um, you know, the scientific method requires that theories be testable and repeatable. Now, by nature, theories of origin are not testable and repeatable. We can't repeat the experiment. The origin of the universe was a one-time event. The creation was a one-time event. So we can't repeat the experiment. So you can't test these theories the same way. Now, Evidence is given for evolution. Evidence is given for creation. We've got to keep in mind that both don't allow themselves to be subjected to the scientific method in exactly the same way. But why is it that creation is excluded? Because it invokes the supernatural. And we've defined science to exclude the supernatural. But again, each is based on an assumption or a worldview, either that God exists or that God does not exist. So my question is, is there observational data to support either theory? So uh, I used to be a teacher. Uh, I taught uh, meteorology at Mississippi State University for many years, and so I gave many tests. And so it just seems natural if I'm talking that I'm going to give you a test now. Okay, not really, but the slide does say test. Um, we're going to look at some images. And it, this is a new experience for me. I usually am used to being able to interact with my audience. Can't do that here, but I hope you will uh, remain engaged and look at these, ev um, these images. I just want you to think what created the spectacular scenes that you see in the next few slides. These are pictures are actually from the Grand Canyon. Um, and here you, you get a clue as to what formed the Grand Canyon. Uh, the Grand Canyon is formed by the tremendous erosional power of water, uh, wind also a factor, but water is the primary agent. And you know, we don't have too much trouble accepting the fact that water creates canyons and Grand Canyons. Because we have seen the erosion, the power of water um, erode and create spectacular things. You know, we've never seen the Grand Canyon form, but we've seen it occur on a smaller scale. Um, here's another example from Arches National Park in Utah. Spectacular scenery out there, and we know that water and wind played a significant role in the, f the formation of the scenery um, from uh, Bryce Canyon National Park. We also see some really weird. Um, 
scenery here. And again, water and wind played a significant role in that. Um, I'm not making this much of a test. I'm giving you the answers. But, um, so we've got some sand dunes, so some waves here. What formed that? Well, could be water, could be wind. So it's amazing the creative power of wind and water. Now, if you give wind and water enough time, you'd be amazed at what can sometimes happen. Um, I've done a lot of work out in the field, and sometimes you see um, formations like this. So what, do you, what, what formed this? Would you believe that wind and water can create a scene like that? Well, generally when I ask that question to an audience, I get a, uh, you know, shaking their head and such. Um, people look at this and they readily recognize, well, you know, I don't have any idea what's going on here. I mean, maybe you can make out some of the pictures, and I've had some people try to come up with a bit of a storyline here. We won't take the time to do that. But they recognize there's more here than just wind and water. There's information here that natural processes cannot explain. Well, that's fine, but I want to show you. I mean, this was amazing. Now, I had to go to the beach a lot for this to happen, but one time when I went to the beach, when the wave came back from the shore, I saw this uh, Canadian flag, and it said, Happy Canada Day. Now, would you believe that natural processes could form that? Most would recognize, oh, no, probably not. And why not? Again, we see, we don't just see, you know, pretty repeating patterns, but we actually see a message here. And when you see a message, when you see information, you recognize, well, that can't just happen. There had to be creative power behind that. Well, then why is it that when we look at cells in our body, when we look at the DNA that's in the cells in our body, which are just unbelievably loaded with information. It's actually been called nature's barcode. Um, we go, well, look what happens with a, you know, time plus matter plus chance created this. Uh, I don't know how much you know about DNA. I don't know what your biology uh, training is. I'm not a biologist, but a DNA molecule contains all the genetic information to create an entire organism. Uh, so let's take a look at how much information are we talking about. Each of the cells in your body contain at least 20 gigabytes worth of information. And that'd be a pretty decent jump drive. It's not as impressive as it was when I started doing these talks years ago, but still, I mean, that's a good jump drive. 20 gigabytes of information in a single cell of your body. Our body contains almost 10 trillion cells, and a cell's ability to store data is currently far beyond our current digital storage capabilities. So you take the best that our minds have been able to develop, and we still cannot store data like the cells in your body can. If the hard drives on your computer, if I took the hard drive on my laptop right here, had the same data density as a cell's nucle nucleus, I could store the internet, which is a lot of information, that's Facebook and YouTube and everything, <laughs> um, I could store all the data in the internet, on the internet 140 times on your laptop. That is really, to me, and to many, mind-boggling the data density that you find in the cells in your body. Um, just want to break that down and give a few more examples. Um, how much data is stored in a kilogram of human tissue? Well, you look at whether you, know, you use DVDs, MP3s, Blu-ray discs. I know most of us don't use that technology anymore. But look at the sheer volume that is stored in just a kilogram of 
human tissue, a tremendous amount of information. And when it comes to processing data, our brains are 2,400 times faster than the best computers that our finest minds have been able to assemble. So you take what human intelligence has been able to design, and we're not even close to what random chance has produced in the universe. Or was it random chance? So a one-cell organism is more complicated than anything that we've been able to create through our supercomputers. So again, the question is, how is it that blind, mindless nature, random chance, has outwit humans, humanity's finest engineering minds? Um, if naturalistic processes, including evolution, are responsible for life, it must be efficient and effective at producing information. Uh, j just a quick tangent before we uh, dive into that just a little bit further. Uh, one thing that just really struck me, I just ran into this one day, and how those who are looking for ex extraterrestrial life outside of the universe, they've got radio telescopes set up scanning and listening to the random noise that comes from the universe. And it's been said, if we can detect a coded message, it doesn't matter if we understand it. We, we're assuming we won't understand it, but if we can hear something other than just noise and see, hear a, you know, tell that there's some sort of code to that noise, then we will know that there's intelligent life in the universe. Well, my question is, if a radio telescope intercepts a coded message, and we're going to assume intelligence, why is it that, get cut up here, um, if we know that there's intelligence behind communication, why is it that when we look in a microscope, and see information in the cells in our body, in DNA, we assume that it was just there by random chance. Is it truly scientific to say, well, information through a radio telescope has to have intelligence behind it, extraterrestrial life, or, but if we look at a microscope and see a message, and it's just an incredible amount of information, uh, the information that creates our bodies, uh, oh, that, that was random chance. Is that a scientific statement to say that? Uh, and the question is, what natural, so what are the natural processes that theoretically have created information? The amount, it, it, you know, a talk like this, you, know, so you could do a whole course, and I'm just kind of scratching the surface on you know, one topic that was really influential in my faith journey, um, why I didn't think it was incompatible to be a scientist and to be a Christian. Um, but, you know, so the, the problem of information, what is the process that adds information, allowing life to go from single-celled, of course, even the origin of the first single-celled life is a problem, but how does it become increasingly complex, complex over time? Well, the explanation for that is mutations. Um, mutations are responsible for the diversity and complexity of life. But what are mutations? Well, they're actually copying errors. The DNA in your body gets copied, um, and sometimes mistakes happen, and those mistakes supposedly are responsible for generating more information. But I want to just give you a very simple um, example of this. If you were to take the word cat and you were to copy it over and over again and started making mistakes, you might get tack, you might get act, if you rearrange the letters, you, you might rearrange it again and get cat. Then you, make, then you lose some information, you, get, you lose a letter and you get at or ah. But how, what, would have to happen in order to copy the word cat over and over and over again and eventually get the word rhododendron. Well, you, you can't just make mistakes. You need new information. You need more letters to be added. The problem is that mutations uh, really don't produce new information at all. 
um, they usually result in a loss of information. So how is it that mutations can explain how we go from single cells all the way to humans? Um, the examples that textbooks do give us of mutations um, that have resulted in advancement in life are actually, if you really dig down into them, are examples of losing information. Now they may give the species uh, an adaptive advantage, but they don't actually they're not an example of gaining information. So for example, bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics. We used to just be able to use penicillin. Now we have to get more and more um, advanced types of antibiotics to kill off bacteria. We have this picture of bacteria becoming stronger, super bacteria. Well, the bacteria are losing the ability to metabolize the antibiotic, which kills it. It's a loss of information. It's not that it's become stronger. It's an advantage, but it's not new information. Uh, fruit flies gaining an extra set of wings. The information, um, you know, that's something that can happen in the lab, but the information for that extra set of wings is already there. What happens is you lose the suppression of that extra set of wings. Um, and a fruit fly with an extra set of wings actually can't fly. It's not an adaptive advantage. Um, they, they die. So, so is information creating evolution based on evidence that we can observe? Well, the presence of information seems to require it, and science's commitment to excluding the supernatural demands it. But how is this more scientific than creation? Well, it's simple. It's not because of the evidence. It's because it excludes the supernatural. But do we have examples of information existing without an intelligence behind it? And do we have examples of mutations resulting in life becoming more and more complex? Um, we really don't. So the key question is, does the empirical evidence support the time plus matter plus chance explanation for the origin and diversity of life? When we see information in design, do we assume random chance or a designer? Well, typically, think about the message on the beach. Uh, when we see information, we assume an intelligence behind it. So which explanation better fits uh, your experience? Does it make sense to answer this question differently when it comes to discussing the origin of life in the universe. So again, just to reinforce that point, again, in our day-to-day -day existence, when we see information in design, we don't assume random chance. We just assume, generally, a designer. So why is it that we answer the question differently when we're talking about the origin of life uh, and the universe? Um, you, we could spend a lot of time going through the different lines of evidence that's given for evolution. I'm just going to briefly touch on a couple. Um, again, many would say, well, there's lots of evidence pointing towards evolution. Um, I just want to briefly touch on a couple and just show that how you interpret the evidence is so influenced by your worldview. One piece of evidence that's given is called homogolous structures. Basically, it looks at the fact that when you look at the arm of a human, a cat, a whale, and a bat, there's some similarity in their structure. Well, that proves that we had a common ancestor. Or does it? Um, when I look at all these different cars, they have some similarity. They have four wheels, and f some of them have four doors, some of them have two, and um, they have a lot of similarities and some differences. But when I look at this, do I assume that they evolved from each other? Well, that seems ridiculous. Of course we don't assume that. Well, they're not living, so they can't evolve. But when we see similarities, whether it's in a house, or in, you know, in different houses or in artwork, uh, it's maybe they did evolve, but it's a very reasonable assumption, too, that maybe they had a common designer. Uh, and that's what I believe explains the, um, the commonality in the, in the structures, that we, we were all designed by God. 
Um, the fossil record is often given as the strongest line of evidence for evolution, uh, and yet ma many paleont paleontologists are willing to admit that it's one of the weakest pieces of evidence, despite what the textbooks say. Uh, the idea here is that if all living things come from a common ancestor, then the fossil record should be full of transitional forms documenting those changes through time. According to Darwin, a complete fossil record would consist of mostly transitional fossils. That when we look at the fossil record, we wouldn't just find the species that we know, that we'd find all a continuous sequence of change through the fossil record. Darwin admitted that his time that nature may almost be said to have guarded against the discovery of transitional or linking forms. But Darwin was doing his research a long time ago. We've had lots of time to make numerous discoveries since then. Has it changed? Well, according to most textbooks, the fossil record is still considered the strongest evidence for organic evolution. However, those are people outside of geology generally making that statement. S uh, Harvard paleontologist, the late Stephen Jay Gould states, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as a trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips of nodes, where we have these fully formed species that we already recognize. The rest is inference, however reasonable. He believes it's reasonable. It's just, strangely enough, it's not the evidence of fossils. So I, I say to you that the, you know, because of a commitment to a worldview in excluding the supernatural, they have to accept this to be true, but the fossil record would not lead you to the conclusion that we are the result of a continuous sequence of transitional species going back through time. Um, this is just an example of what you'll see in the textbook. We've got these different species, and they're saying, you know, we're all connected. We haven't found the species that connect us. We're sure they're there, but we haven't actually found them. So another evolutionist writes, the curious thing is that there's a consistency about the fossil gaps. The fossils go missing in all the important places. Where are the fossils showing how fishes evolved into amphibians or reptiles to mammals or reptiles to birds? Missing, all missing. And the question is, why is that not in our scientific textbooks? Why is it that it's said that the fossil record is the strongest evidence of evolution? Uh, if it is, then the evidence is, I think, rather weak. All right, let's get to some concluding points. Um, you know. We've been talking a lot about evolution, that in order to have evolution, you need to have life. Um, but even before life, what was the origin of the universe? Well, the Big Bang um, is given as the explanation. Now, if my child was in her room and I heard a crash and she came downstairs and I said, what caused that crash? If she said, nothing, uh, I wouldn't believe her. I'd be really suspicious. Now, if we assume there has to be a cause for little bangs, is it re not reasonable to assume that there has to be a cause for the Big Bang? Everything in the universe that had a beginning has a cause. Now, God is eternal. He doesn't, he doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't need a cause. But the universe, you know, science used to believe that the universe was eternal. Science has now recognized what Genesis 1 has said all along in the beginning. We now know that the universe had a beginning. Again, I want to highlight evolution can only take place if there is living matter that can replicate itself. And the scientist who discovered DNA states that the origin of life appears at the, moment, at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to be satisfied to get it going. We could do an entire presentation at looking at the conditions that had to be satisfied just to get the origin of life. So I want to highlight that Christians who believe in creation are not anti-science. I'm a Christian. I'm a scientist. I really wrestled with that as a child, but as I took 
science classes and saw the design in the universe, the design in our bodies, the design in life. It strengthened my faith in God, but I do have a different worldview. I'm committed to the process of science and being evidence-based, not just believing for the sake of believing, but I believe that the evidence actually points to God and a designer. Many in our world do not want to believe that there is anything beyond nature. If you're committed to ex excluding the supernatural, evolution is currently your only explanation. However, I don't believe, and many others agree, that this theory is not better supported by the observational data. So I'll leave you with a look at 1 Peter 3.15, where we are told to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but to do this with gentle and gentleness and respect. And I believe this is so important. Now, you probably won't remember everything that I've given you in this talk, and there's so much more information out there. I hope that I have challenged you, if you are um, not a believer, and science has been an obstacle to coming to faith, I hope I've challenged you to dig a little deeper. And if you are a Christian, I hope that this has encouraged you that we don't just have a blind faith. It's not just, uh, I hope so. Christianity is the only faith that's based on a documented event in history. Where we spend eternity is not based on what you believe about science and about the age of the universe. It's about what you believe with regard to who Jesus was and the fact that He's given us the gift of eternal life. All, all that you have to do is believe and receive the free gift that he offers up to you. So I hope that this helps to uh, answer some of the questions that you might have on this challenging topic. Now, typically when I do talks like this, I have a question and answer period after that. Since we can't do that, I hope that you will join us on Thursday when we're going to do a Zoom session, and I will attempt to answer some of the questions that you have. Chances are I won't be able to answer all of your questions. Something that someone said to me years ago after doing a talk, you won't remember all the information that I told you. I just hope that you will remember that there are answers to the hard questions. Sometimes we have to, to dig for that. So hope that you can join us on Thursday for our Zoom discussion. God bless.